Welcome to TFTB Tales from the Bridge. My name is Tristan. Hi, I'm Marty. Hey, this is Kevin. I'm still Sam. And this is episode number 10, and we are talking about Becky Chambers' A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. We all love this book. It was fantastic. Stick around for some trivia, as usual, at the end. Well, let's make our way over to the bridge. I don't know if you guys have heard about either of these. Both of these are kind of spacey, kind of uh, ship-ish related that I thought were both pretty cool. Um, the first one is relates to DARPA. And anytime I ever hear anything that DARPA does, uh, you know, the Defense Advanced Research Project uh, Agency in the U.S., um, I always get kind of excited because like, it's not all about violence and killing people. Some pretty cool stuff comes out of DARPA, like, you know, the Internet and, and other things like that. Um, they just recently commissioned three different organizations to uh, build a new type of space rocket engine. Uh, so Blue Origin, Lockheed Martin, and uh, uh, GA uh, General Atomics, they've hired all three of them to separately uh, develop a fission thermal rocket for out in space. Um, so typically we use chemical rockets, right? You know, let's burn some some gases and let's shoot it out through a nozzle and let's go fast in space. Um, but this is actual little fission explosions in the backside of a rocket. Um, and I guess the idea is you can travel from Earth to Mars rather than like a seven-month journey in less than half of that. So it can it can it could cut down the journey to Mars, uh, you know, to like three months or something. So just to see if I understand this right, you are riding the wake of a nuclear explosion behind you. Many and constant. Many. Constant. Oh, wow. yeah. I've heard of this before, but I never thought anybody would be crazy enough to build it. Yeah. So it's, an, it's enough that they're willing to pay for it to be built, like an actual working prototype of it. So here's my question. How do you get all these nuclear bombs, with plutonium in them, up into space? And what yeah. happens if anything goes wrong on yeah. that transport? Uh, on that journey fallout all over earth i mean this is why you haven't seen a lot of satellites with any type of nuclear payload for since the 60s i do believe uh i do believe the latest mars um probe whichever one that went up there the, the lander i thought it had some radioactive material on it really? but they've really have been trying to avoid it just for what you say marty but yeah. this would be a, a ton of it wouldn't it like wouldn't this yep. be a lot of radioactive material yeah i'd say so i mean if you have multiple like you said, multiple and continuous nuclear explosions behind you. I mean, they're probably talking about hundreds of nuclear warheads or something, or thousands, who knows? That's, yeah, uh, yeah that's a lot of fissile material to vaporize in our atmosphere, uh, And if anything went wrong on the rocket launching it. Mm -hmm. I know um, Cassini, right? Uh, I think Cassini had a nuclear uh, reactor on it, and I don't know if it was the last time that they did that, but, but um, I remember when I was reading about this issue of like, well, putting nuclear material, you know, through a, launching it into space and what goes wrong. What if it goes wrong that they, they did do it. They just went for it at least once. I don't know how many, I'm sure the Russians also just did this plenty. Uh, they didn't have any worries about that kind of thing. <laughs> Not, I, well, yeah. I have to wonder if like part of the criteria though, I mean, without, this is me just guessing, you know, is, is that it has to be efficient right? Like that you increase the efficiency of, of the combustion. So you don't actually have to bring up as much, you know, like if you can find a process that is really, you know, 
hyper efficient in a way that can manufacture it or process it in whatever way um, is required. And you don't, you know, you're not bringing up enough to be hazardous given a sort of atmospheric accident on the way up. I, I don't know, but I mean, I would think that that would be the first problem they need to tackle, right? Like this, this is exactly the first one that you, you both highlight here. I, I don't know. Again, total guess on my part. But. It sounds to me like, uh, like that idea that you just do once at the end of a movie where it's like, we got to get away. Well, why don't we just blow something up and it'll make us go faster and you just get away with it once. So it's interesting to th- think that they're going to do this as a way to travel for millions of, of kilometers uh, in space. Uh, that's yeah. crazy. Well, yeah. I guess if you need less material, uh, less fuel, because it is so reactive and you don't, you don't need as much of it, you could cut down your costs uh, by... By not sending up so so much heavy fuel, um, but what at what other costs? Which is the potential risk of of uh, destroying parts of the ocean or or who knows what? They have been doing this for a long time because uh, you know I think Voyager one and Voyager two they had a either plutonium or uranium uh, payload for for energy, which is why they're still which is why they're still powered. Yeah, yeah very cool. Also presents an interesting materials. Uh... Material science problem, like what is the back of the ship made of? That is, you know, research getting hit with sort of nuclear wave explosions all the time and just like surfing on it. Like it doesn't, how do you not get destroyed by that kind of propulsion system? I guess you got to launch them far enough away or something. Or or have a ton of radiation, and, and radiation, right? So radiation for right. the poor astronauts who are in there, uh, assuming these are even going to be used with manned spacecrafts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And maybe they won't even do it. Like maybe they'll, they'll, find that it's just not feasible and and it's not worth bothering with because it's too high risk. Well, I think this also touches on an interesting fundamental physics issue about fission versus fusion, right? Fission is what we've got. We figured it out a long time ago, but it's intrinsically toxic and you know, only makes more toxic materials. Um, fusion is the opposite, right? You're taking small light elements and you're blasting together to make a heavier element, but like you're making helium or lithium or something, right? Like still really, really uh, non-toxic kind of materials uh, as a byproduct. And that's why like in science fiction and in video games and Sid Meier's, you know, civilizations, for example, like the big starship doesn't really happen until you, you got, you got to figure out fusion first, right? Fusion is the, is the, the power source that you kind of need. And there's no issue of, of toxicity and blowing up, you know, terrible materials and vaporizing them in the, in the atmosphere when you send up a fusion engine, cause it's basically going to go up with like hydrogen and helium or something like that as its fuel source. Uh, and that really skips over a whole bunch of problems and you're not creating more toxic materials either. You're actually probably creating like useful materials like, that you can use along the way as your waste product. So fusion, man, it's the only way to go. I think uh, both for our own terrestrial energy needs and for propulsion in the future, we got to figure that stuff out. Get on that Marty. Yeah. Well, it's, it's only 20 years away. <laughs> Isn't is, that what they said 20 years ago? Exactly, yeah. This <laughs> is the old joke that few, it's only 20 years away and it always will be. Yeah. <laughs> or they just make launches up into space so reliable that you don't even need to worry about anything falling back. Mm-hmm, yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, that was I thought that was interesting. Another thing, this uh, it's very rare that you hear anything interesting coming out of major airlines, but United Air in the United States has has signed a deal with a U.S.-based organization to build 
a supersonic passenger jet. Um, so we haven't had one of those since the Concorde. British Airways stopped using that um, a while ago. Um, and uh, and this new one is going to be called Boom. Uh, no, the company's name is Boom, and the aircraft is going to be called Overture, apparently. Um, and uh, and it's going to go it's going to go at eighteen hundred kilometers an hour, um, which is which is about eight hundred kilometers faster than the speed of sound, uh, about Mach one point seven, and uh, yeah, which is oddly still slower than the Concorde. Which was originally built in 1976. Wow! But here's a question: Would you pay for that? Does it matter to you to save a couple hours? I wouldn't, but I'm sure there are executives who would, uh, and that's the I'm sure what they're aiming for, right? The... Well, what was the reason that the Concorde was discontinued? Mm -hmm. Sounded as though it was a real maintenance nightmare. Um, apparently, it was not profitable for years and years and years. But in the last couple of years, just before they retired it, it was profitable. Uh, I don't know if that takes into account all the maintenance issues they've been ha they had. But I had heard that it was because they were they were just fairly long in the tooth. I think it'd be fun just to do once to cross the sound barrier and to say that you've done it. Like that that would be the draw for me. But if I was flying regularly, I, yeah, I wouldn't. It couldn't be prohibitively expensive for me to, to use it in any kind of regular fashion. But how fast does a regular jet go? Is it like nine nine hundred kilometers an hour? So it's about double the speed that you'd yeah. get this new one. Yeah, so half the time. Well, I imagine there's a fair number of executives out there that, like, you know, if you're flying, well, it depends how far they can fly too, right? Like, this is the thing. It's kind of diminishing returns. If you can cut your travel time to Australia in half or to China. I think lots of people would pay for that, but I doubt one of these supersonic planes can make that kind of uh, journey in one shot. So well, it also saving an hour or two off off of you know shorter flights, presumably. It would also reduce your changeovers too, right? Because when you're flying, all the planes are basically the same, and when you're going to Australia, you're from this part of the world. You're not necessarily going straight there. You're probably making a stop, uh, depending on what you pay. But I doubt with uh, this overture, you're getting on one overture and then getting on another one. You're, you're probably pretty direct, and that is going to be convenient for a lot of the people that are going places in the world that don't have a direct line from where they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could you could skip the misery of LAX, O'Hare, and Frankfurt. That would be <laughs> worth a lot of money to people, right? Like, and to to, to people who could expense it to a, a big corporate account. Yeah, yeah, at least. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've yeah, stopped in two of those places you just mentioned. So, yeah. mind you, I was in no hurry. <laughs> well, the yeah. the other thing about these supersonic jets is they can't they can't get supersonic unless they're over water because most countries have got laws against these jets um, having sonic booms over populated areas. So they're they're limited to um, you know kind of cross ocean journeys. Mm, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that that's interesting because you'd think New York to L New York to L A would be the obvious thing that you know I'm sure they could make money off of that run. There's so many people doing that all the time. If you could cut that in half, it'd be great. But yeah, I guess you couldn't do it. No, British Airways, their bread and butter was uh, London to New York. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, so we had a little side project last month where we we uh, looked at some award-winning or award-nominated books, and Marty kind of 
kind of got that going. So we all picked our own books. Uh, I had Rebecca Roan Horace's Black Sun, which I loved. What did you guys have? And did you like it? Um, I had N.K. Jemison's The City We Became. So these, uh, we picked um, the four, there happened to be four, both four novels that were both nominated for Hugo and the Nebula uh, this year. And so we each picked one and I have uh, loved everything that I've read by N.K. Jemison to date. And uh, we actually, Kevin, on our first episode, he picked um, a short story by N.K. Jemison as his favorite thing that he read all year, which was The City... Um, the city is, it's a born. similar title, the city born great. That's what it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, we all read that and, and I certainly love that too. And so the city we became is a novelization that, that sort of spring, springs from that short story. Um, and I was super excited about it. And NK Jemison has been winning all the awards and I'm amazed by her as a writer in general. But with this one, I was quite sadly disappointed uh it just didn't hit the mark for me um i like the story better i think the story sort of did everything uh that was best in uh the book and the book sort of i've talked to some other people as well who you know love her work and were disappointed by this it, it they said it could have used a better editor uh, i'm not so aware of all of that but um yeah, it just, it was a story that fell a little flat for me and a little repetitive and it just didn't quite have the lyrical magic that I love of all her other writing. Uh, you know, she's a very, she take, she combines fantasy and sci-fi in this in, intense way where you're sort of in a science fiction world maybe, but, but she describes these... Uh, you know, the, the ways of doing magic, not magic, but having power and, you know, how this might uh, work out in, in the world and how it would feel. And so I love all that about her writing. And she sort of started doing that about what it would be like to be a city. So a person who's an avatar to a city and can feel the city doing different things. And, and I don't know, it just didn't, uh, it started great and didn't quite uh, hit the target. So anyway, uh, I then went and listened to Black Sun, and I friggin' loved it. It was one of the best books I've heard, listened to, read in a while. Maybe it was just where I was at, but I got to agree with Tristan. Uh, Black Sun was amazing uh, by Rebecca Roanhorse. And, um, Which is not science fiction, we should add. Yeah. But, uh, definitely but I, more fantasy. Yeah, but I'm definitely glad to have, to have been introduced to that because I wouldn't have read that if you hadn't brought this little side project to us. So... Uh, it's great. Highly recommended. Um, I read, um, or I started to read, I should say, uh, Piranesi by uh, Susanna Clark. And I'm a, I'm a fan of the Susanna Clark. I was a big fan of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. And so I quickly rose my hand for this book. Um, and um, I just didn't connect with it. I It could be that I, because I was trying it on, as an audible book for the first time. And uh, or as my first Audible book, uh, and it could just be that I, you know, the narrator. But it just it was it's clearly wonderful literature that that was just wasted on on me. Uh, and I can see where other people could really enjoy it. And uh, uh, but I got a couple chapters in, and I couldn't even get past that that stage of of, of building a story. Um, you know, when you sometimes the first like two or three chapters are a bit 
bit rough, but they, they're essential to, to making the rest of the story really good. And maybe that's what happens. And I just didn't, wasn't patient enough, but um, I haven't picked it up since. Uh, I think I'm on chapter three and I just kind of ugh, couldn't do it. And um, again, there could be a couple of factors there. Uh, Susanna Clark's some, uh, an author that I root for, uh, but this novel felt like, uh, like a, a kind of an episode of the twilight zone. Like I almost want, like, I could just almost picture that voice, like picture a man trapped in a house. With, but anyway, so, uh, uh, it, it wasn't for me, uh, but I could definitely see where it would be something, um, enjoyable for, for, um, you know, just better people than me. And, you know, <laughs> so I, 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 um, I did enjoy but You're enjoying that book, Sam. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I really do feel guilty about like not getting anywhere with this, but uh, I just couldn't do it. I just, uh, I, and, you know, we're, we're swimming in amazing stuff to read right now. So, uh, uh, so it's hard to stick with something that doesn't grab me. So as I said last time, I was reading Network Effects by Martha Wells, and uh, and I think at that time I had already read it in our last episode, um, and I've read all of the Murderbot Diaries novellas, and they're all great. You know, I, they're, they're excellent. Uh, the Network Effects was more of the same. It was just a little bit longer. Um, and I read it through quickly and I said, oh, this is awesome. And uh, she has another one coming out this year and I'm going to read that one too. And as I was reading it, I thought there is no way this is going to win the Nebula. It's just, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's repetitive in the series. It's not boring. It's good. It's, it's, it's well-written, but I didn't think it was well-written enough to win the Nebula. And um, Marty was thoughtful enough to host a, uh, a Nebula Awards party in his back deck the other night. And uh, we went and we watched. And sure enough, Network Effects won the Nebula for best uh, novel. And so, of course, made me, um, made me incorrect. Um, but anyway, I, I think that it was, I think that it was uh, not, it was probably well-deserved. You know, what the heck do I know? Well, let's, uh, let's get into the book. I okay. think we all enjoyed. Actually, I haven't heard Kevin say anything, so I think he hated this book. Uh, I liked it. I <laughs> okay. thought it was great. Yeah, okay. it was really well, good. The day Kevin hates a book is the day that uh, civilization will collapse. <laughs> <laughs> Not too many that I've like, gotten all the way through that I hate. I have to say, I feel similar, very similar to Kevin in that. Right, I usually do not hate a book. There's a. I think there's only one book I can think of this year that I didn't really enjoy it it was kind of boring but everything else I'm just i'm good i'm good if you wrote it i'm i'll read it so last month we read uh, the long way to a small angry planet by becky chambers on my recommendation um this is part of a trilogy Actually, I think there's four volumes now of sort of independent stories in the same universe, but um, not necessarily connected, although some of the characters overlap. Uh, this uh, book has a really interesting history of having been self-published and then nominated for major awards and then being picked up by a big publisher. And, and, and then the whole series ended up winning the Hugo for the um, for best series a few books in. And it's been it's gotten great reviews and, and it's a. Uh, uh, um, I think from having talked to you guys about your impressions, everybody enjoyed the book. I can't wait to hear 
what you guys thought and what you liked and what you didn't. I think Sam also went on and read a whole bunch more work by Becky Chambers. I also read one of her novellas, To Be Taught If Fortunate, which was quite a lovely little thing outside of the series of... Um, uh, of the series, and I've read also Closed in Common Orbit, which is the second book um, after The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, which was also very lovely. It overlaps with just a couple of the characters uh, from the first book. So, yeah, I think I said plenty about it in our last episode introducing it, and I'd love to hear what you guys thought. Why don't we start with Kevin on the spot? All right. Well, I tell you... Um... You said in your intro last time it was all about the characters, and uh, and it certainly was. I I mean, this is a nice book because it's easy to connect with. You you have these extremely well developed, uh, very you know round characters. Um, every single one of them is different. It's it's almost as though Becky was doing trying to create a smorgasbord of heterogeneous societies of people that all work together, you know, and, um, and it was, it was one view of utopia that I thought was, was really cool. All these different societies that are accepting of each other. Um, the, the humans that have left soul, you know, uh, the soul system are all pacifists. Um, it's a, it's their, you know, it's, it's this view that we're accepting of different people and love between different species, um, you know, in mo in most cases, but there's still enough of bias that it it makes it it makes it exciting for the reader. Um, you know, the captain Ashby and his and his illicit affair with his uh, Andrisk girlfriend. Um, you know, uh, the AI love between Lovey and Jenks, right? I mean, here we have uh, a short human and an AI who are in love. Um, uh, you know, Pepper, this this other engineer, and and uh, and she comes up from this this special world where they're extremely intolerant of differences, and and uh, and it's painted with this very negative brush. So I, I I thought it was a great way to explore different types of relationships, um, and uh, and we could be accepting of them, um, and and to me that's what the book was about was different types of relationships and and getting right into characters, and along with that I thought was great science fiction writing you know this tunneling through space creating the portals between parts of the universe um that's great sci-fi so she you know you talk about all the different having lots of different check boxes she checked off a lot of check boxes um that made a very ex a, a very good sci-fi story also very accessible yeah they definitely like i, I really enjoyed this this book and uh, the book that followed it just, I was really happy with, with the world that she created and I just didn't want to leave it. So I, I just, as soon as I finished reading and I, I actually just picked up the second one and there, yeah, like divert radical uh, yeah, diversity and inclusiveness and cultural relativism were, were all key themes that I sort of pulled away from from this as well it's kind of like sci-fi for hippies you know like you're you're gonna be you know there's it's a pretty everyone's pretty aligned or fairly aligned on on trying to find a way to to work together and get along and even those even when the stakes do sort of get raised and this sort of imperfect universe is 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 painted i never felt that there was any threat to any of the characters um now it's not entirely true but um, but I don't want to spoil the end of the book for anyone, but it, it's, it's by the sort of second interaction, I think when the pirates show up and you get an, you get, you know, you get a sense that 
oh, they can negotiate. And you also get the pirate's perspective who, you know, they're trying to, you know, what they're with the poverty that they're coming from and, and, and what sort of spurred them into the actions that they're taking so that you kind of see both sides to an issue. There isn't, they're not, there's a lot of gray areas. They're, they're not just like these, you know, black hat desperados who show up and, and rob the place. You know, they can be negotiated with and you get an understanding that they're, you know, they've got kids to feed and that sort of thing. So there's these elements of, of, uh, um, of understanding and, and um, um, sort of cultural exchange. And, and, uh, and I, I, I really enjoyed it. It sometimes felt a little hopeful and, uh, but I was in the right place for it. You know, like I was, I was, I was game for it. And I really, this is a, this turned out to be probably one of my, I put this book in my top five, maybe top three of, of the books that we've uh, read since we've uh, come together as a club. So, um, yeah, I highly recommend, um, and uh, I'm, I'm, I've got the third one from you, Marty. So that's next on my, my reading list. So. Okay, you're right. Yeah, I haven't read that one yet either, but um, I, I'm certainly looking forward to it. This book was full of some of the most likable characters of any book I've read in a while. It, and it happened so quickly too. Um, even though at first you're not sure about Rosemary, you're not sure if she's good and if she's up to something. Uh, soon enough, you find out that she is good and she's trying to get away from something and uh the relationships it's it's a book about relationships the story's not very big um and it really reminded me of that classic and i know it's so easy to refer back to lord of the rings but uh that whole fellowship uh adventure quest um they weren't really on a huge quest they just had a, a meeting point and they had to create a hole through space um, so there wasn't a huge quest, but they stopped at all these planets to get food and just to have time off the ship. They met so many. The world building happened whenever they stopped at these planets. Mm-hmm. And they they um, they met so many characters that the, the world was built on visiting these planets and a little bit of their conversation on the on the ship itself. But the world was really built on those planets and the characters that they visited or that they ran into on these other planets on their journey really felt like that classic fantasy, just like moving along, trying to get to one destination and who we meet along the way. We'll have good conversation. Um, And, uh, but overall I've never read a science fiction book that had so many likable characters and I was rooting for every single one of them. Even the guy I didn't like at the beginning, Corbin, um, I thought, okay, so he's going to be troubled by the end. And of course, by the end, you really empathize with him. Yeah. And, uh, and he's likable. And I did, uh, honestly, I thought that he was going to screw everything up by the end and be, maybe he was going to be the problem because there wasn't one direct problem yeah, yeah. Uh, throughout the story. And he, and I empathized with him and liked him by the end. So I, there's just very few, care, even the pirates, like you're saying, I empathize with them. You know, I got to say, I loved what she did just while we were talking about the subplots. I love the story of Corbin, how she wrapped that up. She sort of starts the book setting up Corbin as like the grouchy old man that, that's the problem, you know, on the crew that people don't get along with. And Sissix especially doesn't get along with him. And so you sort of know that, okay, he, this, this character is being set up for something uh, in the future. And she really 
surprised me. I think that's where she kind of started winning my heart is, is with that. For sure. Is mm. it's not what you expected, right? You expected conflict. You expected this guy to do something bad, piss someone off. But then it turned out, and I don't want to give away too much, but, you know, he under has a surprising uh, sudden hardship. Um, and it turns out that, you know, the two, the, the only person, the person that had to save him uh, was Sissix, who had the hardest and worst relationship with him. And I just, and, and I just love how, I mean, it was just so emblematic, I think, of the, the, the point of her stories and her, her writing is that the two characters with the most conflict, um, you know, one of those had to help the other. And she did so happily, right? She, there was no real, she just, it was clear and absolutely known that, well, of course, I'll do whatever I need. I don't like this guy. He pisses me off all the time, but this is what needs to be done and I'll step up. And I, and, and it's a message about family, right? It's family that, that we're really talking about. It's not just that they're friends. The difference is that they're family and you don't always like your family and they piss you off and you don't get along. And there's personality conflicts, but at the end of the day, you know, you do whatever you need to do because uh, you ultimately love this person, uh, even if they aren't your favorite person. Um, and so. with Sizzix, that was literally true because within the, as an Andrisk, she adopted the crew of the Wayfarers as her family, right? And that was that, that, that she couldn't, she wrote that in literally to, to, to build the relationships amongst that crew, which I thought was really neat. Yeah, yeah. My biggest problem is that in this idealized future, everyone's got to eat giant bugs. And so <laughs> that's my, that's what makes me fear the future. <laughs> I actually really appreciated that just intellectually. It was like it, when, when she put that in and I and, and naturalized it so much, it actually it was a light bulb for me to be like, oh, bong, of course, in the future, everybody's going to be eating insects. It's way higher efficiency, you know, conversion yeah. of protein from, from resources and they're lighter and easier to transport. And you're not going to have a pig on a ship. You're going to have bugs. You're going to have crickets and you're going to, you know, and the bigger the bug, the better. Hey, why not? But it's still not going to, like you can't you can't raise li livestock like, where are we going to get our meat where are we going to protein yeah insects actually make a lot of sense for space travel and dr chef says i think at one point is it true that you eat mammals on mars that's that's you know that's <laughs> barbaric yeah <laughs> no. no it's a great yeah. book good yeah, yeah full of full of great ideas yeah great great for sure it was just neat to to like every character so much uh it was it was like uh going on an adventure with them and not feeling too much resistance and too much uh, uh evil it was yeah i i think you were looking for an optimistic sci-fi marty you said this maybe a year ago or, or so yeah, yeah and this is just this is perfect this is optimistic sci-fi so it's a fun read for anyone who wants that feel good sci-fi read I agree. Yeah, I guess the overarching theme, certainly of this book, maybe all her books, is inclusivity. Um, and it's interesting. She, you know, the uh, the language um, uh, is very progressive. There's a, a certain species that's a, a symbiote between a a sort of you know macroscopic creature and I guess is it a fungus or a bacteria or anyway some sort of microscopic creature that infects its brain and and so they are a they uh, and it's not a gender neutral they it's an actual they there's a they're plural um, I, I, <laughs> and I think 
is there some other gen you know other pronouns are used certainly in the second book i think i don't remember if in the first and and it's just very sort of inclusive it's this view of the future that everybody's trying to just be better and be good and be accepting and be inclusive and boy i mean it's it's sort of surprising that it hasn't this theme i mean it's it's the theme of our time right now so it's not surprising that now is the time that that these kinds of books are coming out but when i think about it I mean, radical inclusivity isn't really a theme that I would have picked out of most of the science fiction I've read. And yet, when you think about it, well, you know, if science fiction is about going forth into the universe and meeting more kinds of intelligent creatures and more cultures and more aliens and more, 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 right, then you'd think actually that's that's a really central theme. Radical inclusivity should be a major theme of science fiction because that's kind of what the future is about, um, is increasing diversity and increasing, um, you know, being able to work together and love each other. And yeah, I yeah. thought it was really a timely book for, for today too. And I like how, I like that. I think radical inclusivity really is the overall theme. I, I didn't, I couldn't put it as concisely as that, but I really, I think that is it. But there were a lot of sub-themes as well, like this idea that Sam, you were talking about before of, of um, uh, AI rights. Um, but then also you were talking about the, uh, the Sinet pair, Ohan, the navigator, and the semi-symbiotic relationship with the bacteria in his brain. But was it? You know, wasn't that? Wasn't it actually controlling them and making them live in a certain way? And when he got rid of that, they were able to separate and live autonomous lives. Mm -hmm. So there's this value-laden idea that that's a better way to live. But is it actually better? So she, it creates. She creates really neat little sub-themes that explore some of these um, these ideas. Yeah, yeah. There's some good gray space there in the sheet. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, the sequel is called A Closed and Common Orbit. And the third book is called The uh, Record of a Spaceborn Few. Um, so all of them seem to be great, very well-received books, highly recommended. And I'm glad everybody enjoyed this one. And I can highly recommend the second one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have that one. That's I great. Found that, I found that at a Mennonite thrift store huh. no joke that's random yeah <laughs> okay so should we do it yeah kevin yeah. it's your kevin, what are we reading your, next month yeah what do we well, got what do we got here i'm really excited about this book um i have to admit i've actually just read it uh i may actually read it again um this is if you liked if you liked the martian um, the 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 blockbuster book that was made into a, a fairly popular movie by Andy Weir. Um, you're gonna love this story. Uh, Andy Weir has just come out with a new book called um, Project Hail Mary. I think I mentioned it in our last episode, um, and uh, I read through it. I got through it in absolutely no time flat. I'm not gonna talk too much about it, apart from saying. If you liked the the approach that he took with the Martian, you're going to love this because it's, I would say, what he did with the Martian times two. Um, and uh, and he, he, he wrote it in such a way that if, you are, if you're into science, if you're into figuring out problems, if you actually want to learn some stuff without having to try to wrap your head around problems that are too complex, um, and, it, and it's presented in an accessible way. Uh, you know, he, he's done a great job of basically doing that in this book. He also doesn't have as many potty words. So if anybody's reading a book to kids or what have you, um, this book is fairly clean. Um, and yeah, so individual who is 
very good at all sorts of different disciplines having to surmount adversity out in space. Uh, so that's the book, Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir. We, we're, we're we're going to we're going to the movies. So okay, okay yeah, I, I did I did uh, 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 Star Trek I think last episode, so I felt it only fair to go to the superior movie franchise. Oh my god, I can't believe you Star just said that. Of Star, Star Wars. Wars. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can agree when we yeah. talked about this that the movie franchise was certainly uh, superior yeah. to Star Wars. Yeah, one's a big screen franchise, one's a small screen franchise. In my and and you know, in this podcast, host humble opinion. But uh, uh, so we are we're going to focus on Wedge and Tilly's. So as as we should. Oh, um, oh wow. Whenever we talk Star Wars, Wedge needs to come up now and again. So, the question for for uh, today is: name the two squadrons that. Wedge and Tilly's was a member of in Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi and name which one, if you're able uh, to, which one he led. Blue. <laughs> red. Black. <laughs> we got a red. So yes. So we got it. So Kevin, yes, you have successfully named one of the two squadrons. Nice. So he was a red and leader. Yes, and that's the one he led. So we've got we got one red leader. In which movie was he red leader? Empire Strikes Back. Incorrect. Dang. Return of the Jedi. Yes. Well, yeah. there was only two choices there. So, <laughs> but we'll get we'll 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 give you the non money prize for uh, for for that anyways. Wait, we're, was we're, Wedge we're, not in A New Hope? Um. Yeah, I th- I'm sure he was. I just, um, yes, he was, in fact, but... Um, he wasn't a leader yet. But, but we're talking about squadrons here. So, right, right. Um, so uh, if, uh, does anyone want to make an attempt on the squadron, which was newly formed for The Empire Strikes Back? Oh, boy, that's good. Green. Not a color, not a color. Yeah, I don't think oh. I had good luck with that last time. Rebel. <laughs> Rebel Squad. Now, now would Rebel. this uh, this would have been on Hoth, I believe, correct? Yep. Yes. Yeah. Nice. So this was at the when they're fighting the ATTs. Yeah. So um, ATTs. The AT-ATs. Yes. Uh, so he was Rogue Three in the Empire Strikes Back Rogue of the three. newly formed Rogue Squadron. So Rogue Squadron was formed for. Uh, the Empire Strikes Back, and he was a member of that under call sign Rogue Three, and he—it's his speeder that makes the first um, successful hit with Wes Jansen as his uh, harpoon gunner. And, oh wow! Uh, so that's the um, so he's he's the um, as far as the opening victory shot. Well, they didn't win that fight, but anyway. So was that uh, the tie but, around the legs of the yes? Yes, yeah. yeah. And then he appears again towards the end of The Return of the Jedi as the leader of Red Squadron at the Battle of Endor. Yeah. So that was my, I thought I'd go with like a sort of tough Star Wars question. And then I've got two easier ones that I've stolen from BuzzFeed because 
um, I didn't expect anyone to really get that one, but <laughs> yeah, someone that's out a good there one. has. I, I like that. Sam. Yeah, that that's was good. good. Oh. I like like it's. I mean, if you can have a trivia question with Wedge in it, I mean, if you had a trivia question with Biggs, now we're talking. <laughs> but Wedge, I mean, that's good. That's good. He's just he's just cool, and um, and and when you get into the if you get into the Star Wars novels. Uh, his storyline is always kind of the most interesting one that I tend to follow. So um, oh, nice. Phantom Squadron comes from, it's him and, and then there's an offshoot with Alphabet Squadron. And you know, it's just sort of, again, fun beach reading and uh, I can recommend it for that. Um, so Buzzfeed had a couple fun ones and I'll just, and they're quick. So I'll, I'll, I'll give them to you now and then um, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap the Star Wars uh, trivia for you. Um, what did Lou Skywalker lose in his fight with Darth Vader? His hand. Which hand? Ooh. Was it right? His... It was his right. Cor- correct. Really? Correct. It was his right hand. And it's his fighting hand, was it? I guess so. Yeah. Yes. yeah. I mean, I'm a lefty, so for me, it's you know, yeah. This is right. My right hand's disposable. It just pulls <laughs> things down, so I can write. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, and finally, who killed Jabba the Hutt? Oh, it's Princess Leia. There you go. Okay, so you guys got two out of three. Well, them good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 good retribution. No Jabba, really. no longer. <laughs> all right the long way to a small angry planet by becky chambers highly recommended next we are reading andy weir's project hail mary another fantastic book check that one out it'll be out in the next few weeks also we talked to carl schrader that episode will be uploaded in the next few weeks so look for that thank you everyone for joining until next time